0: we're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do
1: you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering to record this episode. We recognise the ongoing contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are making to the sciences. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Niamh Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Kelsey Pickard. Today we're going to be talking about food insecurity and how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected Tasmania's experience of food insecurity including findings from the recent Tasmania project with our expert guest Dr Catherine Kent. So Kelsey can you give us a bit more information about our guest and what we're going to be covering today?
2: Yeah sure so Dr. Catherine Kent is a nutrition scientist at the Centre for Rural Health at the University of Tasmania. So Catherine's research interests are public health and nutrition and focusing on healthy food environments and the prevention of diet-related diseases. So welcome, Catherine. Um, Before we get started, we'd love to hear a bit about yourself, where you're from and how you got into science.
0: Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to be here to share our latest research. So I am a nutrition scientist, and I come from a bit more of a science background than what I'll be talking about today. I've um, been working a lot on food intervention studies to see if we can improve people's um, cognition and perhaps their heart health when we feed them uh, really healthy fruits and vegetables. But since moving to Tasmania, I've been working in the Center for Rural Health, And it's a really exciting opportunity where science and public health come together. And we're doing some really impactful research about our food and food environments in Tasmania and how they're keeping people healthy or perhaps not doing their job and not keeping people as healthy as what we'd like.
2: What motivated you to study nutrition?
0: I always wanted to be a physiotherapist growing up and I got into a Bachelor of Science majoring in Exercise Science at the University of Wollongong and it was only after a couple of weeks that I really decided that I really didn't like a lot of the Exercise Science courses that I was doing but I was uh, enjoying a lot my kind of basic biochemistry, my basic um, nutrition science and food sciences courses, so I decided to move over into a Bachelor of Science with major in population health and nutrition. I find the area of how diet impacts disease so fascinating, and I know that a lot of people do as well because we often have um, strong conversations, you know, in my home life or in public about um, what foods are good for us and how they can really impact our health. It's a Really topical area of science to work in. It's ever evolving. It's always changing as we learn more about how diet impacts health.
2: So that's really interesting. I guess um, something that interests me about food science is how food is such a personal issue. Everybody has an opinion on it. Do you have anything to add about how food is so personal to people, um, and how that relates to studying food nutrition?
0: Yes, everybody. Of course, Has lots of opinions about food and nutrition. Everybody tries out different diets that you know in their homes, or they might have specific cultural preferences for their food, uh, and everyone comes to the table with different opinions about what's healthy and what's not. It does start some really interesting debates, but where nutrition science differs is the development of evidence based arguments about whether or not these dietary choices healthy or not that can sometimes bring a little bit of tension to the conversation because people's experiences may not align with evidence-based and that's not to discount anybody's experience Um, but as a nutrition scientist we're always striving to understand uh, you know what the level of evidence is about particular diets and whether or not they're the best for
2: us so your current research um, focuses on flavonoids is that right
0: Yes, that's right. So dietary flavonoids are naturally occurring plant-based compounds that we think are really healthy for you. They provide the colorful pigmentation in plant-based foods. So if you go to the supermarket and you're looking at all the fresh fruits and vegetables, lots of those different colors come from dietary flavonoids. And not only do they look great, we do think they're particularly healthy for you. They've been implicated in um, managing diseases like cardiovascular disease by reducing blood pressure. And they've also been um, investigated for cognitive enhancing properties, which means they're pretty good for our brain.
2: So these are the pigments in plants. Um, Is there any particular colours that flavonoids belong to?
0: Flavonoids can provide lots of different colours in plant-based foods. But we're particularly interested in those purple, red, blue colours that are found in cherries and plums and blueberries. And we think that they're particularly healthy for your heart and your brain. That's not to say that everyone should go out and only eat purple food. But we're particularly interested in understanding how these purple foods can be incorporated into a healthy diet To help people's brains and their heart
1: health. Is there a particular nutritional compound that's within those purple foods in particular? Because I'm sure flavonoids probably result in a rainbow of different colours, but is there a working hypothesis of why specifically the purple coloured pigment from those flavonoids are the best that we need to be including for our heart health and brain health?
0: Uh, the purple red pigments that are found in foods are called anthocyanins, and they are one category of over six thousand dietary flavonoids. So we're not just talking about you know uh, one dietary component. These are really widespread pigments, uh, across many foods, and we do think these anthocyanins are particularly uh, healthy for our heart by. Um, at modulating our vascular function and that sounds pretty tricky but it, what it kind of means is that they are helping to relax our blood vessels and by doing that they can improve the blood flow to our brain and therefore help cognition as well
1: that's fascinating so you're listening to that's what i call science stay with us in just a moment where we'll be talking more about food security and nutrition with our expert guest dr katherine kent
2: listening to That's What I Call Science and today we're talking about food science. Uh, We have a special guest here today, uh, Dr Catherine Kent from the University of Tasmania. So Catherine, you are currently a co-investigator of the Tasmania Project, which is a university-wide multidisciplinary project to understand Tasmanian perspectives on the impact of COVID-19 and specifically, how food access and supply are impacting food insecurity in Tasmania. So, we'd love to hear about the details of this project. But first, can you tell us what food insecurity means? Food
0: insecurity means access by all people at all times to enough food to be happy
1: and healthy and live an active. So that sounds multifaceted in its definition. So that would be things like, I have access to enough income to afford to eat. And do you mean to, talk, to eat nutritiously or just to eat to survive? Um, and then it would also be things like, what kind of shops are available or delivery services are available within my vicinity?
0: Food insecurity is a really complex topic. You're, you're right with all of your suggestions. If someone's food insecure, it means they're struggling to put good, nutritious food on the table every day and they need to have reliable access to enough safe and healthy food to meet their needs. Um, it's a really complex situation and, as you rightly identified, there are lots of, in, um, of factors that impact someone's food security. Income is a major factor, uh, also access to to the shops is a major factor and there are lots of different groups of people who might be food insecure as a result of lots of different reasons, Uh, but definitely a loss of income or change to income is a major
1: factor. That's really fascinating. I'm sure it would be linked to a number of other things like even health literacy, which we recently covered on the show. It's
0: really um, surprising to a lot of Tasmanians
1: that we actually
0: have food insecurity in Tasmania. Um, for lots of us, we go to the shop and we can see all of the beautiful food that we have available, and a lot of it is grown in Tasmania to meet the needs of Tasmanians. But that does not necessarily mean that someone has access to that good food or, or enough good food to meet their needs. And it is a really complex problem in Tasmania. And normally, we'd expect to see around six or seven percent of our Tasmanian households being food insecure Um, and that's um, pretty consistent across the years. Our uh, population health uh, group um, as part of the state government collects this information um, every year about uh, Tasmanians. But what we've actually seen is a really big increase in the number of people who are reporting to be food insecure as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and we We captured data through the Tasmanian project at a really specific time, which might explain um, these really uh, big numbers of food insecurity in Tasmania. What we showed was that one in four Tasmanian households across Tasmania were reporting food insecurity, and that means they were running out of food and they couldn't afford to buy more, or they were regularly skipping meals, or cutting down the size of their meals because they couldn't afford to buy more. And so what we were really investigating was that fiscal aspect um, where people just did not have enough money to buy the food that they needed. And that was really interesting to see that across Tasmania um, and the profit is much higher than that
1: 5 or 6% that we expect to see generally. One in four households is extremely high, um, 25%, a quarter. Did you notice that there were hot spots or was it really across the whole state?
0: What we noticed was it didn't matter whether you lived in the south, near Hobart, in the north, near Launceston, or in the northwest and west of Tasmania, these areas across the board showed similar levels of food insecurity, which was really surprising to us. But where we did see those pockets of higher levels of food insecurity was in those people who were living in rural areas. And that's probably because they had lower access to particular shops um, and maybe couldn't have um, the varied shopping outlets to go around to, to get the food that they needed during the COVID-19 pandemic. So that was a really interesting finding. Um, And we were showing that people who lived in rural areas, uh, it was up to 33% of those people were food insecure, so a third of our rural folks. Unfortunately, as part of our survey, we didn't capture uh, the levels of food insecurity experienced by our participants before COVID-19. What we did capture was whether they had run out of food and couldn't afford to buy more in the past 30 days. So that was around that May, um, kind of early May time period. where really the impacts of COVID-19 were quite severe. We were seeing um, you know, problems with our uh, stock in our shops. Our people were still hoarding food and other supplies during that time. And that really could have exacerbated food insecurity in our vulnerable groups who might not have had the capacity to store enough food or to um, get enough food to meet their needs. What we were able to see with our study is that more food insecure households. Over half of our food insecure households had less than a week of food stored in in their house, and that was much much higher than our food food secure houses. So what's that showing us? Well, it's this is the classic problem in that the government is recommending for everybody to have 14 days worth of food stored in their house in case um, of uh, the worsening pandemic. But this is really uh, hitting our food insecure households much worse in that they might not have enough money to buy 14 days' worth of food at a time uh, or know how to store that food or, or have adequate storage facilities in their homes to really um, be prepared for the worst of the pandemic. And if we think that people were going out and clearing the shelves in our supermarkets, which we all saw and we were all probably impacted, to some degree, what we also showed was that our food insecure households had a lot harder time getting to the shops than our food secure households. So, um, a lot more of our people who were food insecure reported that they had to go around to different shops, but that it was more difficult for them to do that. Uh, and that is another major challenge. So, uh, it's not only the access to food, but it's the ability to be prepared in, in terms of disaster that is really disadvantaging some Tasmanians.
1: Did you see that the number of people per household was different between those that were food insecure and those that were you know secure and had access? In terms of our
0: households it was really our single adult households who had dependents so single parent families mostly who were most at risk and in our survey uh, we showed that these uh, households nearly half of those household reported food insecurity and that's a lot higher to um, couple families who have dependents or couples who are living without dependents and what I guess that shows us is if somebody has a loss of income in a um, couple family you are likely to have another income to back up your household levels of income. So if uh, somebody in a single parent family had a reduction in income or their hours slashed or lost their job as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, they were probably going to be reporting high levels of food insecurity um, than somebody who had a bit more backup in their family um, in terms of income.
1: Excellent insights provided from Dr. Catherine Kent. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Stay tuned and in just a moment we'll be talking about food insecurity in Tasmania in a little bit more detail.
2: You're listening to That's What I Call Science and we are talking about food insecurity in Tasmania and how the COVID pandemic has highlighted limitations in the food supply in Tasmania. My name is Kelsey Picard and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our guest, Dr. Catherine Kent. So, Catherine, how did you design your survey to answer these sorts of questions you were interested in? And did you gain any further insights into how the COVID pandemic has had impact on household incomes and quality of life of Tasmanians? So
0: at the Tasmania Project's food survey was predominantly a quantitative survey, so we had predefined um, answers and ask people to to uh, agree or disagree with particular questions. But uh, we also included several open-ended questions, which have provided us a richer insight into the experience of what's going on for the average Tasmanian household. For example, we were able to um, gain some more understanding about Uh, food insecurity uh, in these particular households, but also what Tasmanians thought about how the uh, COVID-19 pandemic had impacted food supply and what they would like to see in the future for a more resilient food system that meets their needs in Tasmania. So it was a comprehensive survey. We have a lot of information to go through. But it was all about how Tasmanians thought that the food system stacked up in Tasmania during the COVID-19 pandemic and where we could go better in the future. And a lot of the results are indicating that Tasmanians really value Tasmanian grown produce and really strong local food systems and that future investment in local food systems by growing food, packaging food and consuming food all within the same community is maybe the way to go for a lot of Tasmanians to to meet their food needs. And interestingly, that would actually reduce the level of food insecure households in Tasmania. They had some great insights in that regard.
1: Could you give us an example of some people who were doing it really tough and some people that maybe actually found that? They'd experienced some benefits to the way that they were accessing food.
0: Yes, we had some really diverse opinions about how people's experience about food has changed during COVID-19. We had some participants responding that they were consistently running out of food and not being able to buy more, that they were often skipping meals in order to feed their children. And they were some of the more hard to read and hard to... Um, report on findings from our survey. On the other hand, we had some respondents who had received uh, the coronavirus supplement from the government, which were well in excess of their normal uh, income. And some of the qualitative responses from these participants was really positive. They were reporting that they were able to buy enough food to meet their needs, of which they couldn't previously And they were experiencing a really um, more varied diet and a more rich diet um, that could meet their needs. And this is really interesting and something that has been studied at a national level. There was a recent article in the ABC that was saying for the um, coronavirus pandemic, the number of welfare recipients who were skipping meals was are 75% and with the coronavirus supplement that reduced down to 32% of people who were receiving that supplement showing that if we are raising the basic income to a more livable level that these people are actually spending their money on basic necessities like food, healthy food and other luxuries and I put luxuries in inverted commas here like warm clothes or paying their electricity bills or maybe buying shampoo. These are basic human rights for people and uh, it's a really interesting finding from our survey that was, you know, showing the difference and the extremes of what has happened during this coronavirus
1: pandemic. I think that's a really interesting point that's worth reiterating. That 75%, so three quarters of wealth pay, welfare recipients before the pandemic were skipping at least one meal. So you're most likely experiencing hunger, but you're having to choose between keeping your heating on or having three meals a day.
0: That's exactly right. And food is the first thing to go. If you think about it logically, um, we have... Uh, really concrete needs um, and related to our income. Those are our mortgage, our electricity bill, um, and our phone. If we don't pay those things, they get switched off or we get kicked out of our home. And we uh, really don't have a lot of choice in that regard. So they're often the things that are paid for first. And food is a lot lower down the list. It's often the first thing to come off um, the income, the, the expenses for the household because people can skip a meal and perhaps be less impacted than in the short term than not paying their electricity bill. Uh, but the long term impacts of regularly skipping meals are quite extreme. We don't want people to be um, choosing unhealthy food options uh, for a long period of time or not having enough food to meet their needs because the long term impact
1: on their health are uh, really
0: really be, yeah.
1: I think another interesting point there though, that uh, that increase in welfare payment for, due to the pandemic directly saw um, the people who were eating a number of meals, it went from 75% to I think you said 32% that were skipping meals, so more people are eating the required number of meals to meet their daily caloric intake um, but also that the quality of that food improved and that they were spending that money on you know luxuries like shampoo um, so that actually makes an argument that that might- money, although coming from the government or from the the public purse, as it were, is actually still going into the economy. It's going to be generating more jobs. Um, and it's essentially it's not dead money. But also, you know, if we talk about this long term detriment to people's health and psychology um, and also the social determinants and the intergenerational harm of living below the, the poverty line. We've now seen that if we give people better resources and better income that they make smart food choices, they eat more food and they actually do eat varied food.
2: So how do you hope your findings will influence policy and in, for example changes to JobKeeper, seeker payments um, and food supply changes?
0: Food insecurity is a really complex problem, but what our study has shown is that it is something that we can't afford to do nothing about. Uh, Food insecurity costs a lot of money to the Tasmanian health care system. It's been estimated that it's been approximately $60 million a year. um, That's directly related to food insecurity. So there are major policy implications uh, related to our findings because This is pre-COVID costing related to food insecurity, so we can only imagine what the cost would be to our healthcare system if these levels of food insecurity persist for much longer. And what's the answer? Well, it's really not a simple answer. We know that there are lots of things that policymakers do to support food security, Firstly, increasing access to affordable, healthy food is so important. Increasing a sustainable local food supply is really important. And that's through things like maybe mobile fruit and vegetable stalls or farmer's markets or community gardens that bring food from the community directly to the consumers within that community. But the government should be also encouraging jobs growth and skill development um, in those areas related to food, like training small food producers or financially providing opportunities for people to sell food locally to the local community uh, because we know that that can really bring that healthy food to the community and improve dietary consumption of food food consumption at that community level. These are local solutions for local problems. And there is a massive opportunity for local governments to step in here and really examine what's happening to get healthy food to their communities
1: at that level. So Catherine, just one final question for our national audience. What do you think this means on the federal level or you know, would you imagine that your findings are applicable to communities outside of Tasmania?
0: I would expect that these levels of food insecurity are not Tasmanian specific, that these experiences would be echoed in communities all across Australia. And there is, again, an opportunity for the government to really help people um, through this time and beyond COVID-19 by increasing that access to affordable, healthy food, making sure that people have a livable wage at all sectors of the community under the Universal Declaration to Human Rights. It is a basic human right to have healthy food in Australia and governments need to deliver on their promise uh, to keep
1: us healthy under that act. What a great point to end our show on. So you've been listening to that's what I call science, and we've been talking about food insecurity in light of the COVID nineteen pandemic. My name's Neve Chapman, and I'd like to thank my co-host Kelsey Picard and our expert guest, Dr. Catherine Kent. If you've enjoyed the content, please get in touch with us on that science on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And Like and subscribe on your favourite podcast streaming service if that's how you've listened. And we'd love a review because that will help us reach reach even more people with the good word of science. Until next week, thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at EDGE Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.